as we mourn the passing of our beloved Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. It seemed fitting to share words from him today on this feast of Mary, Mother of God, and New Year's Day. The following is from an interview that he, Cardinal Ratzinger, did in the late 90s. Quote, Something I constantly notice is that unembarrassed joy has become rarer. Joy today is increasingly saddled with moral and ideological burdens, so to speak. When someone rejoices, he is afraid of offending against solidarity with the many people who suffer. I don't have any right to rejoice, people think, in a world where there is so much misery so much injustice. I can understand that. There is a moral attitude at work here, but this attitude is nonetheless wrong. The loss of joy does not make the world better. And conversely, refusing joy for the sake of suffering does not help those who suffer. The contrary is true. The world needs people who discover the good who rejoice in it, and thereby derive the impetus and courage to do good. Joy, then, does not break with solidarity. When it is the right kind of joy, when it is not egotistic, when it comes from the perception of the good, then it wants to communicate itself, and it gets passed on. In this connection, it always strikes me that in the poor neighborhoods of, say, South America, one sees many more laughing, happy people than among us. Obviously, despite all their misery, they still have the perception of the good to which they cling, and in which they can find encouragement and strength. In this sense, we have a new need for that primordial trust, which ultimately only faith can give that the world is basically good, that God is there and is good, that it is good to live and to be a human being. This results, then, in the courage to rejoice, which in turn becomes commitment to making sure that other people, too, can rejoice and receive good news. End quote. Scott Hahn recently, in the past month, shared this status, quote, The biggest lie of the devil is that you are too broken for God to fix. End quote. And I think this ties into what Papa Benny is saying. One of the objections to the discipline of joy which I have received is, in essence, that instead of telling women that it's okay to take time to rest and rejuvenate by doing things that they love, and enjoy that women need to stop being selfish and buckle down and power through and essentially suck it up and do what needs to be done and to then offer up what they find difficult and tedious. I agree that there are situations such as when a wave of sickness hits the family and there are no older children who can help, hubby still needs to go to work, you don't want to expose extended family, etc where we absolutely need to power through and do the things that need to be done. And it's not always going to be pretty. And the best we can do in those situations is to just offer it up as best we can. But I want to argue 
based on Papa Benny's words and also this quote from Scott Hahn, against the idea that offering up tedious and difficult tasks should be our default. We believe in a God who transforms. And for us to say that the best that a person can do is to just offer up what they find distasteful is, I think, an iteration of believing the lie to which Scott Hahn refers. Perfect joy is found in embracing the purpose for which one has been created. When we do not love that for which God has made us, there is brokenness there. Dietrich von Hildebrand says this, quote, A representative mark of genuine love is found where each of the other person's worthwhile qualities is looked upon as really his, as typical of him, but his shortcomings are presumed to be unusual deviations from his real self, end quote. Further along in the same chapter, quote, while looking upon positive traits as genuinely or really there, love considers everything negative as a deviation, which stands in conflict, unfaithfulness, and denial from what the other truly is, end quote. And again, further along, quote, in this way, love responds to God's image, the imago Dei, in the other, seeing him in the light of that likeness to God, the similitudo Dei, which should one day be his. Far from considering qualitative disvalues as constitutive for his personality, this love sees them as a betrayal of the noble essence of the Imago Dei. End quote. Now these passages from von Hildebrand are from his book, Man and Woman, Love and the Meaning of Intimacy. But our understanding of perfect love between two humans is based on our understanding of God's love for us. And so when we read this, we should also be making the connection that our flaws, our shortcomings, our deviations from what, or rather who, God created us to be. There is a quote attributed to St. Irenaeus, which translators disagree over, and I won't attempt to argue either way. But some present it as, quote, the glory of God is man fully alive, end quote. And others translate it as, quote, for the glory of God is a living man, and the life of man consists in beholding God, end quote. Regardless, what von Hildebrand says about one's shortcomings being a betrayal of the life of God inside of us corresponds to what St. Irenaeus says about a living man. What does it mean to be fully alive? For us to be fully alive is to be fully human, and the fullness of humanity is found in unity with God, in deep and total intimacy with him, in alignment with him. And that is what is meant when we are told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, quote, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. End quote. The degree to which a human being has achieved perfection is the measure of how closely that human being is united to God. Heaven is complete unity with God, and heaven is only for the perfect. But I digress. Going back to transformation. Transformation, in most cases, does not happen overnight. And for the overwhelming majority of us, transformation, that is true conversion, 
happens slowly over the course of our entire life. But what, what I want to posit for you is that for us to aim, to not merely offer up what is tedious and difficult, but rather to ask for the grace to actually come to love those things which we might currently find tedious or difficult, is a much higher aim, a much loftier goal, a much holier objective. When we talk about the discipline of joy in this podcast and taking time to deliberately and intentionally respond to God's grace, to take time to fill up on the grace which he offers, which he holds out to us at all times, that grace which will then enable us to approach and to accomplish with joy what we have previously considered a drudgery is to witness to God's transformative love. In small ways, yes, but to witness nonetheless, if you can joyfully carry out just one task today, which you have previously gritted your teeth through and merely offered up, and if a few months later you are able to joyfully carry out five tasks each day, and five tasks becomes 15 tasks each day, another several months later, your witness to God's transformative love working in your life is growing. And you are also growing in unity with God. To be able to accomplish His will in union with His Sacred Heart, this is one of the ways that we understand what Mother Teresa means when she says, quote, I have found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. End quote. If you are truly open to God's grace, then eventually those objectively good things which you do, which you at one point steeped in your sin and your weakness find distasteful, eventually, if you are truly seeking sainthood, those tasks should not be distasteful anymore because you love so deeply, you love God so deeply, and you love those whom you have been called to serve as much as God loves them. St. Augustine says, quote, Do not be ashamed to be God's beast of burden. Carrying Christ, you will not go astray. With him burdening you, you make your way through devious paths. May the Lord rest upon us. May he direct us where he wishes. May we be his beast of burden, and thus may we come to Jerusalem. End quote. Those tasks which belong to a woman in service of her family it is ultimately Christ who burdens us with those tasks. It is ultimately Christ who puts these responsibilities on our shoulders. When we talk about offering things up, you know, you do realize that offering something up is supposed to mean making a sacrifice which consoles the heart of the crucified Christ. I want to repeat a very short sentence from the passage I initially shared from Papa Benny. He said, quote, Refusing joy for the sake of suffering does not help those who suffer. End quote. Do you really think that our Lord finds it less consoling when instead of finding your task distasteful and offering up that flaw that you actually allow him Invite him, beg him to heal that flaw in yourself so that you no longer find that task distasteful at all. 
when St. Therese talks about doing little things with great love, do you really think that finding a given task repulsive is somehow indicative of a greater love versus a task which one enjoys? I do not dispute that offering up what tasks we find difficult and tedious and endeavoring to do those difficult and tedious tasks well and without complaint is meritorious. I also firmly believe that it is an objectively excellent practice to offer up what good things we are called to do and yet we do not enjoy, and that buckling down and sucking it up is the default backup to being truly unable to do something joyfully. But to say that we are not using our time wisely when we make effort to grow beyond that place of challenge so that we eventually come to find authentic joy in that previously distasteful task is, I believe, to perpetuate that lie of the devil that we are too broken to fix. Why should God not be able to accomplish this great change in us? So that what objective good others find a drudgery is precisely what fills and feeds our spirits and quenches Christ's thirst for our hearts. I believe that practicing a discipline of joy is to choose to have faith that this transformation is indeed possible with God's grace. Now, I want to segue into a related topic, and I know that I usually um, restrict my comments to marriage. However, I just want to take a moment to share a few practical examples of how my mother's attitude towards specific tasks within her vocation has impacted me, and how I see my own attitude towards my vocation impacting my children. One of the most insightful quotes that I've come across as a parent is this quote from Rudolf Dreikers, quote, children are excellent observers, but poor interpreters. Children are excellent observers, but poor interpreters, end quote. I want to dig into that in relation to the discipline of joy and this witness to transformative love. If there is a task which is proper to your vocation as a wife and as a mother, and if you find that task distasteful and you offer it up, that's usually an internal movement, a silent movement. To offer up that distasteful task, you, you don't usually speak that out loud to yourself or to anyone else. You know, you kind of flip that switch silently. The change isn't really visible or even particularly tangible. And so, unless you're talking to your child about it, unless you're sitting down with your child and saying to your child, so, you know how mommy doesn't really like doing this thing, and, well, what I do is I offer it up, you know, yes, absolutely, you should take the time to explain this concept of offering up sacrifices to your children. And, you know, sacrifice beads are a wonderful thing for a child to learn to use at an early age, as St. Therese did. But I just want to point out that in order to solidify the concept through modeling this behavior, you are going to be constantly calling your child's attention to the fact that you do not enjoy a great many things. And if you are currently in a place, you know, where you don't enjoy most of what being a wife and mother entails, then I don't really know that that's the message that you want your child to walk away with. Do you want them to grow up hyper-focused on the apparent fact, apparent based on your behavior, that adulthood, and specifically the vocation of marriage and parenthood, 
is filled with distasteful tasks. Could I ask you to consider that that is not what you would put on a billboard if you were trying to attract people to the vocation of marriage and parenthood? The billboards for the priesthood and the vocation of religious life are those priests and brothers and sisters who radiate joy and certainly who speak of their trials honestly, but speak considerably less about what they don't like and more about how much they love what they are doing in service to the Lord and to his people. You are a walking billboard for your child. And going back to this fact of children being excellent observers but poor interpreters, if you were never to explain the concept of offering something up, then what they can observe is only that a mother finds many of her tasks distasteful. They pick up very quickly on your mood. By contrast, when you find joy in those tasks which accompany your vocation, this is something that children can both observe easily and interpret correctly without any additional pointed effort from you, without very pointed conversations or lengthy explanations or waiting for them to be old enough to understand the spiritual mystery of uniting oneself to Christ on the cross. Children understand joy found in daily living very easily because that is, at least initially, the bulk of their own experience in a healthy environment. They find great joy in practically everything. Children are normally happy and fascinated and entranced little people. The thing is that this experience can continue for a very long time if they have the right sort of influence in their home. So I said that I was going to talk about my mom. I want to share three impressions that my mother and my father made on me. My mother enjoyed laundry, specifically folding warm laundry. We would sit down together and be folding laundry and mom would comment to herself that warm, fresh laundry was so nice and that rubbed off on me and I have carried that attitude into adulthood with my own vocation and I see it now impacting my children. I loved sitting with my mom folding warm laundry and because she was happy during this time it was an excellent time to connect with her to speak with her and now I'm seeing the same thing all three of my children currently aged four three and one hover around me when I'm folding laundry <laughs> and the two older children consistently offer their assistance because I enjoy it they are eager to be in on it sometimes I've even stepped away to put something you know, away in another room, like towels in the bathroom. I'll come back and my two older children have taken the initiative to put away what things they know how to put away. And they'll, you know, they'll be so excited to tell me that they were very helpful without direction because they knew what to do. Children love being around their parents when their parents are happy. And since I'm happy in this situation, what can come to happen for them is that they may come to associate joy with folding warm laundry. And that's exactly what happened with me as a child folding laundry with my mother. Washing dishes is another task which happens to come with my vocation of homemaker. And my enjoyment of washing dishes was formed in childhood. When I first started contributing to the family by washing dishes, I liked to sing softly to myself. 
And soon it came to be that my mom or dad would turn off any other music that might be playing and encourage me to sing and compliment my singing and they would request their favorite songs for me to sing and they would come into the kitchen if they weren't there already and bring whatever they were doing with them so that we could all be together. Mom would be cooking, dad would be on his laptop, I'd be washing dishes. So I came to associate doing dishes with singing and joyful parents. And to this day, I love washing dishes and singing at the top of my lungs. I did it in college. I amused my classmates and my chef instructors greatly. Sorry, I was in culinary school. I did five years of culinary school and I loved being at the dish tank and just washing dishes for everyone while everyone else ran around and gathered dishes, dropped them off, wiped the kitchen down. The dish tank was my favorite place to be. Now, I still sing when I do dishes and my kids want to help with dishes. <laughs> I frankly haven't figured out the best way to involve them yet. I'm still wrestling with a cramped kitchen configuration that only allows for one child helper on the learning tower at a time. And so unfortunately, helping with the dishes can turn into a fight when both children want to be on the learning tower at the same time. But there is potential here. <laughs> They're eager to help. And I believe that that is because of my attitude when washing dishes. And now a final impression, my mother always left cleaning the bathroom to other people. Either to dad or to us kids, mom did not like cleaning the bathroom. And so guess what? I don't either. <laughs> I don't think she'll mind me saying that. But I know moms, my mom and I both know moms who enjoy cleaning the bathroom. It gives them such joy to make it sparkling and lovely and I'm not one of those bombs and my mother is not one of those bombs but I can be see this is an area that I need to tap into God's grace and beg for him to transform me in this area but right now just for now I'm honestly I'm not there yet and guess what my kids never ask to help clean the bathroom mother is not smiling or excited when cleaning the bathroom mommy is often grumpy and telling everyone to stay out of her way so they have no inclination to be involved with me in bathroom cleaning. Yes, I can offer it up. I try to, and I could sit them down and tell them that offering it up is what I'm doing, but it will take them a much longer time to understand this concept versus understanding very immediately from their own correct observations regarding those tasks, which I do honestly enjoy doing. Now, we've shared this quote before from Mother Teresa. She says, quote, Joy is a net of love in which you can catch souls. End quote. Well, my dear little children are pleasing God greatly by putting their clothes away with smiles on their faces and with no expectation of any reward. I hope that it's accurate to say that I've facilitated that as the only person that they've observed doing laundry in their short lives and that this was made possible because my mother first facilitated the development of the same joyful attitude for me. Okay, I want to very briefly touch on one last point. So going back to the, that lie which Scott Hahn refers to, this lie of the devil that we are too broken to fix. I have encountered an attitude among married persons holding that some faults merit abandonment. That some faults are so terrible that the person with those faults should be abandoned to their own devices by everyone, including their spouse. 
that these faults should free the other spouse of having to do anything for them, of having to try to keep loving them, of having to care about their salvation. And so I'm not I'm not referring only to physical abuse. On that note, the church, in permitting physical separation for the safety of spouses, is not making a statement that the abuser deserves to be totally abandoned. And so I want to be very clear, I am not encountering this as just an attitude that certain faults merit physical separation because the church would agree in cases of domestic abuse, for example. But the attitude that I'm referring to is that certain faults should free an offended spouse from continuing to care about the offending spouse's salvation. I won't spend too much time on this topic. In essence, the statement that I wish to make is that we are called to image Christ to our spouse. And no matter what our spouse's faults, Christ wants our spouse to get to heaven which means that this should be our attitude also, that we should continue to desire our spouse's salvation, that we should not consider it justice for us to abandon our spouse to their own devices, but rather we must understand that no matter what our spouse's faults, that he or she has been entrusted by God to our care, our prayer, and our influence. Even when physically separated, the responsibility to do everything good and safely within one's power to get that spouse to heaven stance. The reason I'm not going to spend much time on this topic is because what I'm going to do instead is recommend uh, that you look to the very strong voices in the church on this subject because they have experience and insight and wisdom and just years of life significantly surpassing my own. So in the first month of my podcast, I spotlighted a book, Impossible Marriages Redeemed, by Layla Miller, and she offers that book for free in PDF format, so I will be linking to that in my blog post. The foreword is by Philip Lawler. He and his wife, Lila Lawler, are two other voices to be looking to. Please read this book. It is not a defensible position for any Catholic to hold that there are flaws in a spouse which merit that spouse's total abandonment, flaws which cannot be redeemed, which free the offended spouse from that purpose of marriage to bring each other to heaven. That is simply not true. And I bring this up again in reference to that quote from Scott Hahn, that the biggest lie of the devil is that you are too broken for God to fix. Well, one of the lies of the devil that he whispers into the ears of many is that your spouse is too broken for God to fix. And therefore, if God can't do it, neither can you. And so you are released from any obligation towards them. It's true, you're not able to fix them. It's God who does the fixing. But that's the thing, is that there is no flaw in a spouse which releases you from the obligation to be the one who walks them to the gates of heaven, even if you can only do so from a physical distance. This sort of attitude that some things are beyond forgiveness and beyond redemption is undoubtedly due to demonic influence. So check out that book, Impossible Marriages Redeemed. Again, free PDF version linked in my corresponding blog post for this podcast episode. And as we enter this new year, firstly, I invite you to join me in examining ourselves and identifying where we might be holding this belief that our faults or the faults of others, specifically the faults of our husbands, are beyond the reach of God's love. And 
as we mourn the loss of Papa Benny, perhaps out of love for so great a servant of God, I invite you to endeavor to embrace your vocation more fully and to ask God for the grace to find in your vocation what Papa Benny refers to as that unembarrassed joy, a joy which proclaims to our husbands and our children and all that encounter us that it is good to live and good to be human and good to be called to witness to the power of God's transformative love.